It's good to be here today. It's good to be able to worship him and to praise him and be with our family in doing so. I see some familiar faces and some unfamiliar faces, but they're all beautiful faces created by him. So welcome. I, uh, this week's been an eventful week in our household, and uh, um, we, we like to create events. I should say I like to disrupt life as much as I possibly can, and, uh, and so we're full on doing that in our place. Um, our house is in disarray and tore up. But we had, um, well, let me tell you first about the, this, the title of the message today is, and we've been talking a lot about the attributes of a New Testament church. What are the characteristics or the attributes of a New Testament church? There's been, we've been talking about Acts or preaching out of Acts for many months, but attributes of a New Testament church, we talked about that that a new, a new Testament church, and we are a New Testament church, we go through seasons. There's an attribute that's supernatural. There's one that's, that we really, it's all about salvation, isn't it? There's a, it, it, let me see if I can see what this one was called. So, attributes of a New Testament church, what comes after salvation? I lost my place, sorry. Bear with me. Isn't technology a wonderful thing? All right. Fasting is another attribute. Um, acceptance, hope and joy. And today, oh, in life eternal is another attribute. We believe in life eternal, that we look at our life as not just now, but it's eternal. Sometimes we get so focused on the now, we forget about the eternal. And then today's message is, an attribute of a New Testament church is that we are able to go from crisis to Christ in us. From crisis to Christ in us. That's an attribute of a New Testament church. It's not all about the crisis, all about the issues in our lives. It's about Christ in us, the hope of glory. Where are you today? Are you more crisis or more Christ in us? So that's what I really want to get into today. What we've had going on in our house is about three years ago, or was it longer? Longer, maybe? I think it was three to four years ago. Our son, he had been diagnosed with something called colostiatoma. It's never a word you would ever use unless you had it or knew of somebody that had it. What it really is, is in your ear, you have your outer ear. Mine are growing. Um, then you have your middle ear, and in there, there's, there's little bones. I remember one's called the stirrup because that's kind of cool. And then, then there's the inner ear. Well, for him, in this middle ear area, in that void, uh, he had skin begin to grow where skin's not supposed to grow. And what happened is this grew and grew and grew to the point where it had really destroyed all the bones in that middle ear section and had started to grow into what they call the mastoid, which is kind of the back area of the skull. And, and, and I'm not, maybe I should have a science teacher come up and explain all that. But anyhow, that's what was going on. So they found it, which was great. Praise the Lord. They found it. So we were able to go in and have surgery done to remove that. And they did that. And that was about three years ago. And then uh, a year later, they said, come back and we'll put in a prosthetic bone so then he could have this hearing restored. And so we did that, and so we went back and had that second surgery, and, and he's healthy, he's doing well, and, and he's strong. Well, we, we had to go back because over about the last, about a year or so ago, his hearing started to, to diminish again. And so we went to the doctor, and what we found uh, then was that scar tissue had started to develop from the surgeries that were closing off his ear canal. So they said, we'll just have you come back, and we'll kind of open that up again, and he'll be good to go. And so... so because of uh, the nature of insurance today, we had to wait a little longer because we had changed insurance companies and all that. And I won't get political about insurance, but anyhow, it's been a trial. It's been a crisis or a trial in our life. So we changed insurance companies. We finally got to see the doctor on Tuesday. And what we found out is all that was done is kind of not working. And so we're kind of in this place again of uh, crisis or struggle or trial. And and I thought, you know, we could go a couple ways with this. One, we could be frustrated with the surgeon that, 
that the prosthetic device that's now out of place, was it his fault or what was the deal? Um, you can't even see into the eardrum because the canal is so closed. He basically has lost 90 to 95% of all his hearing in that side. And, and, um, and so we're, there's more to come. You know, we believe in a heavenly father that desires us all to be whole and healed. But in my studying this week, what I found was some of the, the desire in his heart for us to be whole is not always in the physical healing. He believes in physical healing. He, he created us to be whole physically, but he wants us to be whole spiritually. He wants to, to work out the salvation within us. Sometimes we go into crisis so he can develop Christ in us. Now, does he create the crisis? No, we're in a fallen world. It's an imperfect place. Did you know that America is not perfect? So it's an imperfect world, and in that imperfection, there's sin, and there's hurt, and there's all these issues that arise, and we get thrust into crisis, but God, our great Redeemer, can take the crisis and build up Christ within us. And so... Yes, does he want to bring about healing? Yeah, but he also wants to bring out spiritual growth and maturity. So this was the thing that we're going through right now is, Lord, I want him to be able to hear fully in both ears. Praise the Lord, he's got perfect hearing and a perfect ear on his left side. And I'm thankful for that. And, and yeah, you need to turn down the music because you need to protect that ear. That happens some in our house. But what I'm finding is even in him, he's got this peace beyond understanding. Isn't that awesome? Because God's grace and his mercy is sufficient for all. And so we're believing that God's going to work it out. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to trust in him. What crisis may you be going through? What are the trials in life that, that you're experiencing right now? And, and today I want to encourage you that whatever crisis you're in, whatever trial you're enduring right now, God can restore you and make you greater than you were going into it. We sang a lot of good songs today. Thank you, team, Amanda. and They were all really great with this message today. It's like we knew what was going on. But God knew what was going on for sure. In Acts, you know, I really want to complete Acts by the end of the year. And what I'm finding is when you start to get in these chapters of 19, 20, 21, 22, it's just a lot of traveling and recapping of what, what Paul had been doing. See, Paul, when he was met on the road to Damascus, which he recaps again in one of those chapters, his, his life completely changed. He had an immediate crisis. He went blind because of a great light and a voice from heaven saying, Paul, Saul, Saul, actually, why do you persecute me? Yeah, it was a, a major crisis in his life. And then out of that, Christ to develop, started to develop within him, Christ in us. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and he started to grow. And then he was sent out on these missionary trips, and we'd go out and travel to different places, and he'd preach the message and it all comes back to a point where he has to go to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a place that every time he preached the message, Jerusalem got upset because the message he was preaching, truth, life, light, hope, resurrection, was, was affecting or had a, a negative impact on the message that was coming out of Jerusalem. And so they're getting more and more irritated, more and more frustrated, there's a crisis going on in their life, and the crisis is this man, Paul, preaching a message that needs to just be quiet about, so they think. And then all of a sudden within him, he begins, as the Holy Spirit directed him in all the places he went. He went to Philippi and Ephesus and Thessalonica, and by the way, those kind of go with the books in the Bible, Ephesians and Philippians and Thessalonians, and, and he wrote all those, which is pretty awesome. He wrote 11, 11 books of the New Testament. 
this man that was on a road to, to Damascus to, to persecute and murder Christians, that man wrote 11 books of the Bible. The, the man that said, Jerusalem's message is absolutely true. There is no other truth, and, and I'm going to go and put down these believers and, and make sure they don't preach that truth because our message is true. That man wrote 11 books of the Bible. That man is the one that, that because the Holy Spirit within him directed him to write these messages, helped us develop to become a New Testament church. That man, that man that was creating crisis in believers, then became a man through crisis, started to to reveal Christ in him to such a level many people want to want to pattern their lives after his writings that that man was was a bad man and now he is a man that we use today to help direct us through his writings as the holy spirit revealed truth to him to give to us because god can take any man and when they when they in crisis recognize who god is can change them from being just who they were to who he destined them to be. That's true for you and true for me. You could be like that man, where you could have Christ in you so awesome that there's hope for glory. Now, who is this man? This man was one that went out then and started preaching and teaching and saving a lot of folks. He... he, he ventured out of the norm and, and went after the Gentiles, which in that day were, were the ones that were distant, distant from God, the ones that had no opportunity to be one with God. He went and helped them understand the, the truth. And then the, because of the Holy Spirit moving, they were, now to be able, they were now able to be one with God. But it didn't come without trial. It didn't come without crisis to the point where he knew that the Holy Spirit was going to direct him back to Jerusalem, to the place that they were so mad and so frustrated and so irritated by his message that he knew certain doom would be there for him. Certain trials would definitely arise. In fact, the people that he was talking to were so upset over the fact that, you know, in many ways they're probably very nice Christian brothers and sisters saying, no, Paul, you don't want to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. Don't go. We love you. Just stay here and teach us some more. And, and there was many that, and once, once they re- realized that Paul was so resolved about where he had to go, they finally gave up on saying, don't go. And they said, Paul, we're going to miss you, buddy. Let's pray. And they would pray together, and they'd pray for him as he went. And he got to Jerusalem. And sure enough, while he's in Jerusalem, he goes and meets with other disciples, James, different ones that were there. And he goes to the temple, and as he's at the temple or the synagogue in Jerusalem, people recognized him. They happened to be in the place that he was preaching the message, like in Ephesus. They, they had seen him there speaking what they thought was incorrect, was not truth. And so they stirred up a riot and chaos and crisis broke out to the point where the local government grew uneasy, so they went and grabbed him up. And, and it wasn't that he didn't know this was going to happen. Earlier in Acts 21, a, a prophet by the name of Agabus actually told him, this is what's going to happen. He went and grabs his belt at one point. He had come down from Judea, and in Acts chapter 21, verse 11, it says, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will, block, will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, we and the people there urged him, we being the writer of Acts, Luke, we urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Some would say, okay, so that man was actually, he was elevated in man's world. He was looked uh, well upon by the man that would say, go crucify the Christians. There was a point in time that he studied under the best teachers in Jerusalem. He had fame. He had uh, notoriety. And now, 
he was going to be killed for his belief. Who's, who's ready to do that? Who's ready to go from being famous, comfortable, successful in this life and saying, I'm willing to die for my belief? There's a, my mind's racing all of a sudden, and, and as I'm trying to catch a thought, I'm just thinking about these third world countries, that there is serious persecution that comes upon believers, and that there are believers that have died for their faith. We've heard about the ISIS and, and the different things that are going on around the world, that people are actually dying because they're Christians. That's crisis. But there's also an enemy at work that says e- a crisis for you may not be the fact that somebody's going to cut your head off, but that you just can't get ready and out of the house on time in the morning. It's the same enemy at work. But the, the, that enemy at work knows how to make crisis in your life and does. But you as a New Testament church Christian believer can take crisis and turn it to Christ in us is our hope for glory. It's the same enemy that was at work in Paul's life when he was Saul. It's the same enemy that that tells you there's a crisis in your life when maybe it's just a problem. So he goes to Jerusalem, Paul does. He is a He's taken to the barracks, and he's tied up and bound, as Agabus had prophesied. He was beaten. To protect him, they were holding him in the barracks because they knew he would be killed. There was a plot at one time later on in, the chap- in, in chapter 23 where people were, there was 40 Jews that had, that had vowed they would not eat or drink until they killed Paul. And so they had mastered, built this master plan to, to uh, as they were moving him from one place to the next, they were going to ambush him and kill him. And by the Holy Spirit and, and, and uh, revealing to uh, a family member that this was going to happen, his, they were able to come up with a better plan. But his life was not great. But yet you look into the life of Paul and into his his heart and his thoughts, and you start reading in these 11 books of the Bible about the man and his message, and you see so many things, especially in like the book of Philippians, where joy was his message. Joy. In the midst of crisis, joy? Why? Because it's Christ in us. That's why he could have a message of joy. And, and, and God never leaves us nor forsakes us. And as you read in Acts tw- uh, chapter 23, verse 11, he, he's, he's in these barracks, he's locked up, and the following night, the Lord stood by him. That alone would tip me over. That alone would make me so at peace after the fear of the Lord overcame me that I would be just okay. But then there came a promise, and he said to Paul, the Lord did, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem now, so you must testify also in Rome. So there was something beyond the moment. I wrote a note here, in crisis, the promise of future gives way to hope beyond the pain. Okay, so I'm going to say that again because that was an amen one. So in crisis, the promise of future gives way to hope beyond the pain. That's awesome. I could preach. I need one of those people that hold up cards. It says clap, say amen. Um, but think about it. When you go into crisis, here's a tip. What is the promise God has given you in life that you know is from him? And when you're in the midst of crisis and you think it's over with and it's done and it's just so painful, there's probably not a tomorrow. Remember the promise, the future promise. That's the promise that gives way to hope beyond the pain. Now, how? How how can we as 
New Testament church believers as Christians, how can we, in the midst of crisis, go from crisis to Christ in us? There's so many different ways. But we sang about one today, and, and what I wrote in my notes is, Eye on the Prize. It's, it's back to what I said earlier, that there is a future, there is a promise, there is something beyond the now. And it's fixing our eye on that prize that helps us get through the crisis that we're in today. And when you start focusing on the prize, you can't help but then to start to have attributes and things that are glorious coming out of you. Because when you focus on Christ, then Christ becomes in you the hope of glory. Eye on the prize. How to be Christ in us. Philippians 3, 12, 14. Philippians, written by Paul. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. This is Paul saying that. The one that's been imprisoned for his belief is still identifying the fact that he's not already perfect. And, and, and understand that each crisis that came along was one that was helping him become more perfect, more mature. And and I read this, and I think, wow, I've got a long ways to go. Because he's identifying the fact that he's not already perfect. But even in his lack of maturity, in his imperfection, in our imperfection, in our lack of maturity, I press on, we press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus had made me his own. You're not your own. You're his Brothers, I, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies be- ahead. I mentioned that last week. Forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead. Some of, in, in sales, I uh, used to preach a lot in the sales world. It was preaching good news of more sales, but not necessarily good news of the gospel that we know as Jesus Christ died for our sins so we could be saved and live a resurrected life. But I used to preach it. What we would preach was this. You're either growing or you're dying. Because the minute you stop to see where you're at, you've started to slip back. And I I thought about that when I read this verse today is When he says, but one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Stop looking at where I'm at right now because then I'll start slipping back to where I was, but keeping my eyes forward and keep pressing forward and keep moving on. And then he goes on in verse 14, and everybody should memorize this verse, Philippians 3.14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's that prize of the upward call? It's that call that's upward. Doug, it's time to come up to me. That's the prize. When he comes back for you and says, I'm bringing you home. Oh, do you ever struggle in life? Would you ever like to live this, leave this life behind because of the struggles, because of the pains? Imagine the day. And I know growing up, it seemed like it was the elderly folks in my life that couldn't wait for that call. Because I still wanted to live a lot of life. I remember my grandmother was almost angry. And I don't know that she was angry, but she was fresh. Was she angry? She was angry. She was like, I want to go to heaven, and I'm still here. She really wanted to be there. She's there right now. But that's the prize of the upward call. So when you consider the crisis, set your eye on the prize. Set your eye on what this life is really all about. And it's not about the now. It's not about who I am. It's that I am his and the prize is heaven. How to be Christ in us. Keeping your eye on the prize. But then in it also, proclaiming the message in the midst of the mess. In the midst of your crisis, in the midst of your mess, it's proclaiming the message, the good news, the gospel 
Do you think when Paul was being persecuted that he just shut up? Because if he had, his life would have had less pain, physical pain, emotional pain, distress. But no, he kept proclaiming the message. It wasn't that he was uh, a strong man or anything of that nature that upset or made people jealous. It was what was coming out of his mouth that upset the Jerusalem folks. It was what was coming out of his mouth that the enemy wanted to shut up. Sometimes the mess in our life is evidence of the fact that we're doing what the enemy detests. And and many times we work so hard to get out of the mess, which in in a sense would be trying to get to a place where the enemy's happy with us again. Is that making sense? Sometimes the mess is because you're doing what the enemy detests. Count it all joy, Paul's, James says, when various trials come into your life. Count it all joy. Because sometimes it's because you're doing things that the enemy doesn't like. Many of us fight to get back to comfort. In fact, our crisis becomes exactly that. We're uncomfortable, and lack of comfort means I'm at crisis. But that uncomfortable, that crisis, that's when our eyes are focused on this and not that. Looking ahead. Colossians 1.24 says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. Sounds like a crazy man. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. That's what I'm trying to explain. The suffering's not a bad thing, and you can be glad in it. For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Paul's sufferings were going on because he was trying to help build the New Testament church. The the church that would be relevant for everybody that's hurting in the world today. The, The church that would be the message in the midst of the messes. The the church that would be hope when there seems like there's no hope. He was he was troubled and he was suffering in his body because he wanted to further what Christ had started at the cross. As we ought to want to do as well. What was started at the cross and what Paul was doing, we ought to want to do as well. And that is suffer for the cause of furthering the message. Being the church. Verse 25, God has given me the responsibility, Paul says, of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past. And in that day, this was a newer message. It was called the way. But now it was in the open. Now it was being getting, it was out there so people could know. But now it has been revealed to God's people, he says. In verse 27, for God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. It wasn't just for the Jews. It's now for all. The door has been opened for all. And this is the secret. You ready for the secret? Look at your neighbor and say, I got a secret for you. Here's the secret. Christ lives in you. Tell your neighbor, Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. And why is that important? I don't think I don't think the secret was that long. I still hear a lot of whispering going on. I'm thinking the secret was Christ lives in you, and it was only one, two, there's only four words. (laughs) 
he goes on and says this, Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. Isn't that awesome? This gives guarantee assurances that you get to share in his glory. What is his glory? Well, it's not something you can measure. You can't put a price on it. All the world's taxes could not pay for his glory. It's priceless. So the secret is this. Christ is in you, and you get to share in his glory, which is priceless. All the things that money tries to bring can never get you the satisfaction of his glory. Take a deep breath. Isn't that satisfying? And that was just the breath that he breathed. We get to share in his glory. What is his glory? It's the manifest presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature. The manifest presentation. It's, it's the actual seeing of, the understanding, the, the, the encountering of God's infinite, unmeasurable, infinite, and majestic nature. Isn't that an awesome statement? And that's, that's somebody trying to confine his glory into words, and it can't be confined even into words, and that alone is just awesome. What I want to share in his glory. If you're sharing in his glory, then what should our lives look like? It would look like when I'm in crisis that people would see Christ in us. So what was the secret? Christ is in you. And so we have assurances that we get to share in his glory. So that means when you go into crisis and you give message in the midst of mess, the message is this. They get to see glory in you. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, are you a New Testament church believer? And if so, then guess what? You'll, you'll resemble things like his glory, and, and some of those things would be a, a brightness in your life, a, amazing might, praise, honor, greatness, glorious being. What, what, a glorious being would be like a person that's glorious to be around. Uh, uh, heaven, man, when I'm, when, when I'm with you, I just feel like I'm in heaven. When was the last someone, the time somebody told you that? Hopefully it was your spouse. Pride, but a healthy pride, a pride that I got this because you know who my daddy is? So tell others about Christ. He goes on in verse 28 of Colossians 1. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us, we want to present them to God perfect, mature in their relationship to Christ. Paul goes on to say, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. What's another way to have Christ in us? You need to go after, pursue, expect, evaluate, measure up daily that priceless faith that we're called to have. 1 Peter 1 verse 6 says, So be truly glad there is a wonderful joy ahead. Even though you you must endure many trials for a little while. Amen. A little while. When I say a little while, you should say amen. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is is far more precious than mere gold, 
So when your faith remains strong through many trials, say trials, say crisis, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. James 1.12 says, and I mentioned this earlier, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Crisis isn't what breaks you. In the midst of crisis is where he makes you. That's why we can joy in the midst of trials. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when, you, when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Needing nothing. What do you need? My need is I want to grow to a place where my endurance is fully developed. Where I can be mature and complete, needing nothing. I'm not there right now because I have lots of needs. Yes, wants too. And I define my wants as needs many, many times. But it's because I need to grow more. It's, I don't need to sit and have a pity party, party over the fact that I'm not perfect. I just need to recognize that when a crisis comes or when a trial comes and my faith is tested, I, I can be joyful because I'm going to have an opportunity to come through that trial or through that crisis and come out with great joy as my faith was tested because I, I grew. And, and beyond that, there's going to be a day where I won't need anything. Now, there is a sorrow. There is a sorrow that comes. And, and, and I'm not saying that it's all joy. I, I, joy is the outflow that I think comes after the sorrow. He's our oil of joy for mourning, not it's time to wake up mourning. It's mourning in that I'm sad and sorrowful. He's our oil of joy for mourning. So sorrow will come, but joy comes in the... That's when you wake up, morning. Sorrow leading to salvation. Second Corinthians, Corinthians, written by Paul, chapter 7, verse 10 says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience, God wants us to experience what? Sorrow. But this sorrow leads us away from the thing that binds us, the thing that tears us down, the thing that destroys us. We'll call it a three-letter word, S-I-N, sin. It leads us away from sin and results in salvation. So God wants us to experience sorrow. Why? For salvation. There's no regret, regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, because there is a world that's lacking. There is a world that's sorry right now. That's hurting, that's searching and seeking and is very lost. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, see, this is the sorrow that doesn't lead to joy. This is the sorrow that I'm just going to be sorry and I'm going to remain in a sorry place because maybe I haven't heard the good news or the good news has been shared with me and I've rejected it. That was what was happening in Jerusalem as Paul was heading that way. They had heard the message. They didn't like the message. They had rejected the message, so they got to be sorry. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Spiritual death. That means it's a death where you will never get to a place where you lack nothing. You will always lack when you're in spiritual death. God has not called us to be lacking. 
He's called us to be alive spiritually. To be alive spiritually means we will encounter some sorrow which will lead to salvation, which will lead to joy. So how do I know if the person is going through a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow? By the fruit that it bears. If you're just constantly sorry about something, it's time to say, God, is there a sin in my life? Is there an issue in my life that's causing me to live through this sorrow over and over and over again? Or do I need to finally repent because it's sorrow without repentance that leads to spiritual death? Do I need to repent for the thing that I'm going through and finally give it to you so I can have, and this is the amen part, salvation and joy? You guys are getting really good at that. And then finally, this is the good part. Finally, he will restore you. The Lord, our keeper, in Psalms 121, 1 through 8. Great psalm. This is another one you should memorize. Psalm, the whole chapter. Psalm chapter 122, not Psalm 119. That would be more difficult to memorize. For you that don't know, there's hundreds of verses. Psalms 121, it's only eight verses long. It says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Does it come from the hills? No. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So so I'm not to look at the earthly things for my help. I'm not to, by the way, I am going to encourage you, get out and vote. In the vote, you're not going to find your help. In your vote, you will be able to influence. So you are giving, not receiving when you vote. You are giving influence, not looking to receive help. Because, do I look to the hills from where, I, where my help comes from? No. No, 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 no. My help comes from the Lord who made the hills, made the people, made the governments. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he keeps Israel, will neither, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So let me keep reading it. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is your keeper. He's the one, as it says in verse 4, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Why is that an important verse? And this is kind of a, a quick little rabbit trail. Why is that so important? Because we're in a crisis today as, as a society. I, I don't believe it's, it's uh, an American thing alone. But I think that the enemy is robbing us of sleep and of slumber because of anxiety and because of cares and because of issues and because of crisis and because of trials. But our God is where I'm going to look to for my help. My help comes from who? The Lord, who never sleeps nor slumbers. So as I sleep, and I sleep well, I'm being watched out for by he who never sleeps nor slumbers. My, my son said it sounded like a jungle the other night coming out of our bedroom because we were sleeping so good. Why is that? Because I sleep really well. And I breathe really heavy through everything. Why? I can sleep peacefully knowing that my Lord never slumbers nor sleeps. Set your eyes on that, not on the anxiety or the anxiousness that keeps you awake. He will restore you. First Peter 5, 6 to 11 says, humble yourselves, therefore, 
not be humbled by him. Again, I said this numerous times in the last several weeks. We can choose to humble ourselves. It, and Peter here is telling us, humble yourself. Therefore, he's really speaking to the younger people. He, he's addressing in this chapter elders and everybody else. And this is the everybody else. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Who exalts you? Who promotes you? Who gives you place in order to give influence? He does. He will exalt you. Many times when we try to get ourselves in those places, it's not faced with a great outcome. Promotion comes from him. He exalts you. Casting all your, and in the New Living Translation, it says, anxieties. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I, I've not, I know that there's, there's those out there that battle with anxieties and things like, and it's very common. If you think you're the only one, you're wrong. Everybody, it seems like nowadays, and it struggles with some level of anxiety that, that, that's being tried. You know, many people try to treat it medically, and, and I thank God for the doctors and the, and the scientists and everybody that's come up with ways to help the body. But they didn't get knowledge on their own. Knowledge comes from the Lord. And so my experience of sleepless nights was, and, and again, it goes back to my son. One night I had a dream where he was a little guy, and he ran out in the street, and he got hit by a car right in front of me. It was traumatic to the point I yelled and woke up almost like that. But I did. It was like, oh, and I woke myself out of a dead sleep. And I was so troubled. I mean, I was sweating and worked up and just anxious and immediately started praying out in the spirit. And every now and again, that, that thought would come back into my mind and that visual would come back into my head and I'd just start praying in the spirit. And, and I actually got to this place of, Lord, thank you for giving me that. Because what it did for me is it caused me not to be overly protective, but to watch out for my son so that that would never happen. Now, we didn't put him in a bubble and put a leash around him and make sure he stayed within five feet of the front door of the house. But, but I, I started to look at that and said, you know, Lord, I don't know why I had that dream, but I'm going to look to you to take that. Take that from me. That's not for me. I will intercede as you intercede for me. I will also intercede for that. But, Lord, take that from me. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. As you can't sleep at night, he's already awake. Cast those anxieties. Cast those cares on him. Go immediately to prayer and find that peace that surpasses understanding. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, though. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Wait a second, God, you were just telling me through Paul, Peter in 1 Peter 5, 7 to cast all my anxieties on him. And then right after that, you say, we have an adversary devil prowling around trying to devour me. True. There is something bad going on somewhere, maybe right now in here. I don't know, but don't worry about it. Cast that anxiety on him. He's already told us that he knows about the, the devil prowling around, pr prowling around like a roaring lion, lion, knowing that he's out to seek to kill somebody, to devour someone. He already knows that. So we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. All we have to do is just resist that. Resist him, the, the enemy. Stay firm in your faith, that priceless faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's nothing new under the sun. You are going through something, and so is somebody else in the world, and he's keenly aware of all of it. And after you have suffered a little while, amen, a little while, the God of all grace who has called you. This is the restoration piece. This is the happy moment. You ready? We just came through the story. We got to know all the characters. There was a crisis, and now we're coming to the end of the story, and it's kind of like a Hallmark movie because it's happy at the end. 
And after you have all suffered a little while and the show is coming to an end, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, he won't send someone else along, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Who needs to be restored, confirmed? I've been rejected my whole life. No one's ever told me I was worth anything. I've heard people say that to me. Well, God's going to come. He himself is going to say, I confirm you. You are mine. I love you. You've been created for a special purpose, and I'm going to give you that purpose and walk you through that purpose. You're awesome. You're majestic because you belong. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. He himself will confirm you. He himself will strengthen you. He himself will establish you. And remember the promise, we will lack nothing. We'll have all that we need. So he says, let's praise him. In this last verse, he doesn't say it. He does it. He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. May it be all of his. May he have control. May he lord over it. May he have dominion over all of it forever and ever. In 10 days. Hopefully we've all voted. And in 10 days, Christ will have dominion forever and ever. Remember, you're giving influence, but your help and what you receive comes from the Lord. From crisis to Christ in us. What's the crisis that you're in? What's the crisis you're facing? If you'd all stand. What's the crisis you're in the midst of? Count it all joy, James says. That's going to be my new term to walk around just irritate people. Because I'm the oldest, so I'm an antagonist by birth order. Maybe not. But that's the excuse I like to use. Anyhow, I want to run around and say, count it all joy. It's raining out. Count it all joy. I lost my job. Count it all joy. I'm sick. Count it all joy. We got a bad report on his ear. Count it all joy. What, what's yours? Count it all joy. Physically, I'm not doing well, Pastor. Count it all joy. I'm not saying it to irritate or antagonize. I'm saying it because in the midst of that, guess what gets to happen is Christ gets to be in you and you get to share in his glory. Man, I'm going through it. Count it all joy because you get to share in his glory and he's going to work things out in you and you're going to lack nothing. Be encouraged in the midst of crisis.